Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Imagine searching for guidance on the best way to live life. You have the chance to speak with two advisors. The first lifts your spirits. After listening carefully to you, he explains that you have value, possess unique insights, and have something to say and contribute. He argues that your needs and feelings must come first, that everything will work out, and that what matters most is what you want. Your life, experiences, and goals count. He provides valuable advice on working diligently, saving wisely, planning strategically, building steadily, establishing, thriving, loving, and relishing a life well-lived, enriched by the company of family, community, friends, children, and grandchildren. He expresses affection, even nostalgia, for the person you are, what your shared humanity represents, and who you will become. Then, you turn to the second advisor. His name is Paul. He is not interested in what you have to say. He can't hear you. Even if he could, he would not listen. Moreover, to make sure that you know beyond the shadow of any doubt that nothing of value can ever come from you, as the guest in your home, he ridicules and invalidates your family tree. He explains that you are nothing and have no value as a husband or a father. You are a tool to be used for a purpose until you are broken and eventually set aside like a used-up oblation. He admits that this goes against your nature because no man is truly capable of hating his own flesh, but that's his point. He is giving you a dark saying from Psalm 78. He is hitting you with the painful imposition of the words of Genesis, sealed in the content of his teaching of the cross in 1 Corinthians. It is not your life. There is no such thing as your life. It is life, of which human beings are only a small part. Your plans are not God's plan. The things that you build, your dynasties and eternity projects, offend God. You want to please others, to be surrounded by friends and family, because you want to please yourself. But this is not love. You will not become anything. You are temporary, taken from dust, and returning to dust. Like all men, your days are like grass, and the place where you once lived will not remember you. The only thing that stands is the Torah, which was here before you, does not come from you, and will be here after you are long gone. As my student Luke now explains, there is a chance, after the cancellation of the kings and princes of Israel, 
that this Torah can be found again in the wilderness in the arms of the Lamb of God who will be slain for your sake. So keep your mouth shut and listen to him. Be honest. Which advice would you take? You don't have to answer today. But believe me, you will have to answer. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 490 of the Bible as Literature podcast. If you think back on the literary progression within the Gospel of Luke, from the outset, it has been this effort by the scriptural text within Luke to tear down the authority of the temple, this monument to the legacy of kings in Jerusalem as a reference for the addressee of the story. And even though we are in an historical context where the temple is not there physically, remember that human beings love their monuments and their tombstones. We really want people to know that we were here. We don't accept that in Genesis, Elohim limits our domain to our mammalian status as creatures that pass away from generation to generation and have to produce children through childbirth. Remember that the kings of old in the Old Testament cannot make babies. They are, like all creatures upon the earth, dependent on a woman who becomes a mother through childbirth. But we like to pretend that we can continue our lines. So we build buildings and cities and we write our names on these buildings. We make statues of ourselves. We paint paintings of ourselves and of our children. We dedicate all kinds of interesting structures and institutions to our fathers, to ourselves, and then we die and sometimes entire civilizations are wiped out, and what is left is tombs, graves, monuments. That's why ultimately in each of the Gospels, the temple itself is understood as a tomb from which the scroll of the Torah has to escape. That's how deeply ingrained our worship of idols is psychologically, and that's what Luke is attacking. So as we said last week, you begin in Luke after all this effort is made 
moving from womb to womb. The Holy Spirit is moving from womb to womb, carrying the command of Elohim. You begin with John the Baptist in the wilderness, Rich. And then after it has been made very clear that we have John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ firmly established by the command of God without human dynasty, you have the adoption of Jesus Christ, born of a woman, now born under the law by the command of God, literally a bar mitzvah in the Gospel of Luke. Then you have this dynasty, this patrilineal whatever, this Toledot, which is put under the aegis of Elohim, so that everybody understands that whatever Jesus is, he doesn't belong to any fleshly dynasty. He was born of the flesh, like all human beings, but he doesn't belong to the legacy of monuments and stone. Least of all, he does not belong to the temple in Jerusalem. Where does that put us at the beginning of chapter 4, Richard? We start out in that wilderness where we first found John, where we first heard this word. And this contrast that you so aptly bring out, looking back at chapter 3, I mean, don't forget, the beginning of chapter 3 was about the reign of Tiberius Caesar and the governor and the tetrarch and the other tetrarch and the other tetrarch and the high priest. And that was when the word came to John in the wilderness. The scripture does not make a big distinction between buildings and monuments and genealogies, because the human father wants his eternity project, which is going to be the thing that he builds. You know, in Rome, it was a temple. In Minnesota, it's a cabin. But something that you build with your own hands that's going to be passed down to the next generation. This assumes, of course, that the next generation is just a copy of you, which is what the unwise father wants of his child, is just to be a copy of him. Well, of course, my child's going to want this cabin that I put so much time and effort and love into. And then the son says, I don't care for cabins. And then the father flips out because he doesn't understand how did it so happen that this thing that I meant to be built for eternity and this child I built for the sake of continuing my will to the end of time doesn't seem like it's working out. And this is precisely what we have in the beginning of chapter three. We have Caesar, governor, tetrarch, 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 high priest, high priest, wilderness. And this distinction that Luke is bringing out is so stark that right before the genealogy in verse 22, the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased, flows very nicely into 4.1. We interrupt it with this earthly genealogy, which in fact just goes from God to God anyway, showing that, like you said, Father, Jesus is not one of yours. He is not one of yours. He is not like you. He is not of you. He is above you. 
He is my Kyrios. He is my shepherd. You are my flock, and I'm putting him at the head. There is a difference. And how do we know there's a difference? Because a voice from heaven said there's a difference. This is my son. Not any of these people in this whole line. He doesn't declare any of them to be son. He never uses the word son to talk about any of them. Only about Jesus. This is what's so brutal, even diabolical, if I can use the word, because those of you who have listened carefully, especially to Father Paul's program on Tuesdays, know that God can come at you in the Old Testament, even as an evil spirit, when he so chooses. So I'll just say this. The text from Ephesians 5 that is heard at the wedding ceremony in Eastern churches is diabolical. Because what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 is the most unpleasant thing I have ever heard as a husband, a father, and a priest. And it relates very much to what we're hearing here in the Lucan text, Richard. He is saying to you that your patrilineal line is discarded, that your function as father is to be discarded. You are to be cast aside. Your function is to make sure that the household is, in effect, fathered by the word, washed with the word, nurtured with the word, and you yourself are irrelevant to be literally sacrificed, cast aside, spent, and you will ultimately go back to the dust from which you were taken. You are no reference. And if you hear it, if you hear it in context of the content of the cross, as Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians, as it plays out in each of the four Gospels, if you hear it in the context of Genesis, it is diabolical. It's not a pleasant text. It is saying to all those assembled, the couple is no reference, and most of all, the groom is no reference. He will be spent. He will be anathema, like a discarded corpse hanging from the side of the temple wall, so that the word can be preached for the sake of the republic, the res publica, because ultimately the bride is no reference because she will die also. It goes against our fleshly mind which makes out of the people we're looking at the reference. I don't know what else to say. It's very heavy. Just as God is discarding each generation, he's saying, you're temporary. It is my word that stands forever. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5. It's just so clear the way that Elohim discards each generation. He's discarding the husband, 
and ultimately the bride. Because there is no reference but Elohim. Nobody wants to hear that because we Americans are all entitled. It's about us and our life. And I've been using this word diabolical, but I want to point out that the text is only diabolical from a human reference point. What is truly diabolical is, as always, the thing that appears pleasant to us, which is what the Avalos will propose to Jesus in just a few verses. I don't want the audience to miss the parallel between the city and the buildings and the wilderness and the tent, the so-called permanent and the recognizably temporary. The same happens with human beings. We have the dynasty and we have the sheep that simply pass away. Recognizing this distinction is what Scripture offers us. And as we move through Luke, we need to recognize that so far in three chapters, Luke has been emphasizing this in as many ways possible for Theophilus so that he might hear those things that are important. The word moving from temple to the wilderness, the ineffectiveness of human leaders and human dynasties, the negligibility of human authority and human power. Already these are the themes of Luke that we found in these first three chapters. And then as we continue, let's note how these themes develop. And I'll just say this, Richard, because it needs to be repeated time and again. The value of Jesus is that he accepted to be thrown away. He accepted not to have a dynasty. He accepted not to ascend a throne. He accepted to be humiliated. He accepted the will of his father. He submitted fully to humiliation, to an unremarkable life, to shame upon shame. And it is diabolical. It is not, as Father Paul loves to say, a Hallmark card. It cannot be packaged as something beautiful and lovely and precious and wonderful. It is dark and painful and frightening and terrifying and sad and depressing. But it is the will of the Father. And it is through the discarding of Jesus Christ that the Zerah of Elohim produces life for each generation. It is the seed that produces life in every generation. And that is why it is so important that Christ was born of a woman first and then born under the law. What Luke is teaching is that each of us are born of a woman and the hope is that we are then born under the law of instruction. That's what Torah means. 
so that each generation can find hope and life in the wilderness through Jesus Christ. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Here we go. We saw the command of Elohim move from womb to womb. Then we saw the Lord's prophet in the wilderness at the outset of Luke. And now once again we are with the Lord Jesus Christ whom Matthew preaches to us at the outset of the New Testament as the last of the prophets, completing the work of the prophet Jonah who was sent to the nations with God's instruction. Now in the storyline of the New Testament, we are now in the third gospel. Again, Jesus is coming to complete this work and he is being led by the Spirit in the wilderness. We ended Matthew, the first book, in the wilderness in the kingdom under the heavens. And here we are again with the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. This is where we always find ourselves, because it is in the wilderness where we find our true place as sons and daughters of Adam, as regular mammals, where there's no distinction between any other human beings. We imagine there's a distinction, but there isn't. The only distinction lies in the seed. I have to keep saying this. The only thing that is of value is the zera'ah, which doesn't come from us. It comes from God the Father. We want to say that there's a difference between the Benton dynasty or the Bulos dynasty, but that's a fantasy. We want to say there's a difference between the dynasty of the sons of Israel or the dynasty of the sons of Northern Europe, but that's a fantasy. In Scripture, the only distinction between Israel and the nations is that the sons of Israel in the story were put to shame by the distinction of having received the Torah first, but that just means they were put to shame first as an example of sin so that others could soon be put to shame by the instruction. It doesn't mean that the sons of Israel were special. And here we have Jesus, who voluntarily was put to shame in the most horrible way possible in fulfillment of the teaching of Isaiah. Yeah, and what one would expect when one gets declared by a voice from the heavens that this is my son, where would you expect that person to end up? In an empty place with nothing. That's not what you would expect, actually. You'd expect him to have at least like a nice place to stay <laughs> or a good place to go to or, you know, what could God provide for a guy who he just declared his son? The maker of the heavens and the earth, what would he offer his own son? He sends a spirit to lead him around in the wilderness. Because this is the domain 
of God. There is no place for God in the city. There is no place for God with this tetrarch or that governor. There is no place for him. You already have God set up there. God will make his home in the tabernacle, in the skinny, in the tent, in the wilderness. This is where Jesus goes. This is where Jesus is led. So the Spirit comes upon him as he's declared to be the Son of God, and then the same Spirit leads him around while he's in the wilderness. Jesus has no place in the city at this point. His home is in the wilderness. And as you said, Father, with all the other mammals, with all the other animals, there's no place for all these other animals in the city. That's one of the reasons why you build walls. It's because you want to keep wild animals away from eating your grain, from eating your sheep. Out in the wilderness, you don't have these protections. You live among them. Your fate is like theirs. Eat or be eaten, just like the rest of life. And this is where the Spirit leads Jesus. I want to come back, Richard, to something in emphasizing the total shame and irrelevance of Jesus as he is presented by the text. And I know that is counterintuitive for our listeners, because the way that Christians present Jesus, they present him the way the government presents Barack Obama as a flashy leader. But that's not scripture. Jesus only became something when Elohim, again, you know, in terms of the suffering servant of Isaiah, when Elohim decided that this one who was cast off by the earthly princes and rulers, this one who was wrongly disregarded, when Elohim decided that this unimpressive, worthless person who led an unimpressive life and died a shameful death, when God decided that this one should be raised, it's only then that he was raised above all other powers to be seated in power at the right hand of God the Father. This is why you can't depict the resurrection, because you will always depict Christ coming in power to look like George Washington or Barack Obama, the way George Washington is depicted in this silly, using this silly Hellenistic blasphemous term, the apotheosis, depicted in the ceiling of the rotunda in Washington, D.C. That's how you perceive power. That's not what Scripture is talking about, because you're talking about the projection of your ego on the heavens. The value of Jesus Christ is the fact that he was so irrelevant. And the point that you raised, Richard, is that he didn't have any progeny. He didn't build a dynasty. It's not invalidating the importance of having children because the commandment to have children stands in Genesis chapter 1. That's not the point that the New Testament is making. It is saying that Jesus himself accepted to be completely erased. Completely erased. What is a king without a dynasty? 
This is a powerful statement that the text is making. If he doesn't even have offspring, the only way that Jesus can be a reference is by the right hand of Elohim. So it's a complete giving up of everything. He becomes totally irrelevant. I mean, I just don't think we Americans are capable. We are so naturally entitled and so naturally self-referential, Richard. And I say this as someone who's been preaching and teaching scripture as a pastor for, you know, a few years now. I just don't think we're really capable of hearing what's going on in the text. It's just, it's so naturally offensive to us that the text would present to us the story of a man whose end goes beyond what we conceive of as cancellation. I don't know how else to say it, Rich. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those 40 days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Here we have the introduction of the devil as a character, and I want to make a couple comments about this word in Hebrew, satan or hasatan, which literally means an adversary or also an attorney, the adversarial attorney who's speaking on behalf of the accusation. In Job, Satan is the one who speaks against Job. We have this character appear a few times in the Old Testament. The word that we have in Greek, diabolos, relates to the word diaboli, which is slander. So what is slander? Slander is a lying word about somebody. It's a contrary word, and that is the function of Diabolos here in Luke chapter 4. He's here to speak a contrary word. It's also significant that there is this hint of a reminiscence of the conversation between Eve and the serpent, where we have Diabolos coming to this hungry person and starting a conversation about whether to eat or not to eat. And when Jesus is hungry after fasting these 40 days, and of course, I don't need to mention how 40 days is the amount of time of 40 years that the children of Israel spent in the wilderness with Moses as their only leader who was submitting to God. 40 in the wilderness is always significant. After not eating for 40 days, this slanderer, this accusing attorney, is coming to Jesus with a contrary word. And the word is going to be all about preserving himself, establishing himself, building himself up. When he was declared a son precisely because he is what God offers as his Kyrios, as his shepherd for his flock. That is the function of Satan in Scripture. Satan is the obstacle to God's instruction. Satan is the one who constantly stands in the way of the gospel teaching. He stands in the way of Elohim's instruction. He stands in the way of the function of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. 
And ultimately, the function of Jesus is to reject the throne, to destroy human authority in favor of the singular authority of our God who is in the heavens. In this sense, there is an indelible interconnection between the function Satan and the function Caesar. This is something that has been intuitive and obvious to me that there is a direct connection between the earthly throne asserted by human dynasty and the function Satan in Scripture. I'm talking about the function Satan. I'm not talking about the personality Satan in theology. Because the function Satanas is anything that stands in the way or obstructs the instruction of God. And the whole matrix of God's instruction and its authority in the biblical narrative plays out by supplanting the authority of human dynasty through functionality. We've tried to explain this in so many ways. The New Testament is the story of the removal of Caesar, the dethronement of Caesar, and the pushing down of his station. So Jesus replaces Caesar in the story, but then the station that Jesus takes over is demoted, in effect. That's what's happening in Ephesians. We've talked about this in the past. So that it is only Elohim who rules over men. That's what's happening in Luke chapter 3. So what is Satan going to do just after Herod and all of these different human kings were dethroned so that only Elohim is in charge? It's only his Toledoth that counts. Satan's going to come around and say, hey, I'd like to get back on that chair. That's the game. You know, it's not a tug of war between Satan and Elohim. There is no tug of war. Everybody works for Elohim. It's just that Satan would like to prove Elohim wrong. <laughs> it, it kind of feels like the book of Job all over again. Oh, yeah, you think that this Jesus, you think he really doesn't want to be king? I'll show you. I'll show you. He wants to be king just like everybody else. But, of course, we know that that's not the direction the story goes. No, in very simple terms, the word of the devil is you can build a dynasty for yourself. You can build a building for yourself. You can build an eternity project for yourself. That's the word of the devil. The word of the devil is not the awful, you know, killing babies to drain their blood. And it, th that's not what the devil does. Th that would be too obvious. <laughs> that's what that's Hollywood what does. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's what Hollywood does with it, because it's much more interesting. Because if the devil in every Hollywood movie simply helped people build a life for themselves, a dynasty for themselves, a building for themselves— the devil wouldn't look like such a bad guy to us because we're used to the good guy doing all those things in the movies. The good guy in the movies builds up a life for himself. The good guy 
teaches everyone how they should do their own thing and that they shouldn't listen to others and they should be doing their own thing. You know, we were talking earlier about this kind of contradiction we see among Americans that so many Americans say, you know, how come people won't submit to the church? How come people won't submit to police officers? How come people won't submit to teachers? There's so much disrespect all over the place. And then you ask them, what do they think about what their bishop is doing or what their boss is doing or what their congressperson is doing? They'll go on and on and on and tell you about how terrible of a person they are and how much of a better job they could do if they were in charge. This is how we like to think. Everyone should be obeying the authority that I obey, but the only leaders that I will obey are the ones who I respect. And this is how the devil speaks. This is how the devil speaks, because the devil says, yeah, you know, take into consideration these other things, but basically, you know, you should be taking care of yourself. And as long as you're taking care of yourself, everything will fall into place. Just take care of yourself. That's how the devil talks. That is the word that goes against the word of God. But there's good news here, Rich, because the Apostle Paul would say the fact that Jesus is being tested under pressure means he's on the path to the kingdom. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.